good. Um, and I love, and I'm always amazed at how he works things together through his providence. And we talk about that all the time with the worship service and how that's often, you know, very sometimes unintentionally connected to the message or something that might be shared in Sunday school that tries directly to the message and um, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, but it's such, so much greater than that. So the testimony I want to share, I, uh, at the same exact week that I'm preparing to preach on the Lord's Supper, which is the next thing in the text, or I'm sorry, the Lord's Prayer, which is the next thing in the text, um, I am hosting the um, National Day of Prayer at the Ark Encounter. And that had been set up 14 months ago. That, um, that was the week they were coming, and again, in God's providence, it happened to be while I'm preparing this, this message. The National Day of Prayer, it's their, uh, their um, task force. It's basically the top two layers of their leadership for planning the National Day of Prayer around the, the nation. And when it's all said and done, they have like 18,000 volunteers that are a part of this. But again, this was their 138 people from all over the United States, virtually all 50 states. And a lot of times when I do events, you know, either at the Ark or the Creation Museum, I sell them. I might put in an appearance just to connect with the group leader, but I don't often spend a ton of time at the event itself because we have a team to do that and they do it well. But I knew that in this particular case, I was going to spend every moment of time that I could that week with them. I had met a couple of their leaders 14 months ago. They were, uh, the leader of it is one of the most godly women I've ever met in my life. And uh, I wanted to be a part of that with them. And she was just one of 138. And the reason I want to share it as a bit of a testimony is I was convicted. I was convicted by a number of things during that time. They were here, their leadership came on Monday, and I walked them through the ark. Then their expanded leadership, about 15, came on Tuesday to the museum. I walked them through there. Then I walked with the same group through the ark on Wednesday. They had an hour-long Q&A with me during lunch. What I didn't know, and this group was different than any other group I had taken through, is as I'm walking through, they literally are filling notebooks. They look like Maria Elena filling the notebook. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome, you know. But um, they were filling their no- <laughs> there you go. They were filling their notebooks because what I didn't realize is the group that I took through took through the other 120 and taught them the same thing I had taught them. And as I'm convicted by this, these people, 138 of them, the number one thing I was convicted by was prayerlessness. Do I pray? Absolutely. Do I go to the Lord privately and in public? Yes, absolutely. Do I pray as I ought? No. No. These people, that was their DNA. That was who they were. They, they bathed everything, every moment in prayer. I would have conversations with people I would have conversations with people, and it was impossible to walk away without them grabbing a shoulder and saying, can I pray for you now? And of course, I always said yes. Um, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. How often do I, you can insert yourself in there if, if if it applies, how often do I speak with somebody and say, yes, I'm going to pray for you. And maybe I do. Maybe I forget. Maybe an email comes across the email chain and I read it, but I'm in the middle of work and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to come back to that. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. More often than not, I, I do. But why not? when you're in the presence of of a brother or sister in Christ, pray now. 
Why not? When you read that, pray now. I want to be that guy. I want us to be that people. Another thing I was convicted by, there was, like I said, 138 of them. They were um, men, women, all ages. Most were, most were older. Um, it was a prayer for them that they would bring back um, 20, pe- 20 young people from each state to next year's meeting. Now remember, I said there were 138. So they want 1,138 next year. And they were believing God for that, you know? And they were going to work towards that with his blessing. Um, but, you know, there was young and old, different supposed races, um, very different denominations, very different expressions of worship, which we had the, the joy of, of doing together. Um, but all students of the Word, all standing solidly on the Word, praying the Word, and uh, seeking Him in all that they did. It was such an blessing and encouragement. There was uh, one moment, or actually it was like three moments, um, there was a guy that I had met um, about six years ago, actually attended this event six years ago, and uh, representing the Ark in the museum, and I had met this guy who loves our ministry, and we had talked a lot, we had prayed together, and he was there. He's the Georgia State Coordinator. And very quickly after we got there and we reconnected, um, he had told me, he said, you know, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit. You know, it's one thing when somebody says, I'm going to pray for you. It's another thing when you, somebody says, I'm going to commit to pray for you. And they do it on their own. And he said that on, on that first night, Thursday night, he said, I'm going to commit to pray for you and for your ministry through the remainder of 2023 and all of 2024. And then sure enough, as there were sessions where we would go into times of private prayer, he was like three tables behind me. I was up sitting at the head table with the leader, and he was like three, three tables behind me. And every time we would go into a time of private prayer, within about seven seconds, I would feel a hand on my shoulder that he had sprinted from his table to pray for me. And in fact, on the last night, he said, you know, Eddie, you know, in addition to I'm going to pray for you, he said, no pressure, no pressure. He said, but I'd love to do a prayer call with you every week. And he said, we'll we'll just worship God together. We'll pray for your family and we'll pray for your ministry. Would that be okay? Yes. (laughs) He said, well, you can pray. I don't need to pray about that. God already wants me to pray, so I don't need to pray about that. But um, so we do. We had our first one last week. We'll have our next one tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., every Monday, indefinitely. That's prayer. Um, The final thing, and I I don't, well, no, two more things. The greatest blessing for me during that week and the greatest encouragement that I had was Saturday night. It was getting ready to close the session out. And Kathy, Kathy Branzell, the president of the National Day of Prayer, said, we want to leave a blessing here. So we want to pray for this ministry. So I sat there and looked at 138 men and women on their knees, on their faces, praying for answers in Genesis, praying for Ken, praying for me, praying for the impact, praying for our guest who would come. It was one of the most humbling experiences ever. And then finally, and then I'll close with this and begin the, the, the message. Finally, um, Sunday morning, and the ark is now closed on Sundays at this season of the, the year. On Sunday morning, we, we took that group and another event that we had going on. It was a donor event that was going on. It had about 80 people. And we combined them all together. And they sat by regions and got to know each other and prayed for one another and then we had a time of worship with True Song, our uh, resident uh, group, and then Ken preached. It was such a joy to see the fellowship of the body of Christ all lifting God's glory in prayer together, as it should be. Well, anyway, I wanted to share that because, um, again, I'm always fascinated. I'm always blown away 
which, by the way, is our series for um, youth group right now, being blown away by God. I'm always blown away by how God works those things together. So let's pray, um, fittingly, and then uh, we'll go dive into his word. Father, you are a great and glorious God. Father, we marvel at you. We marvel at your grace bestowed upon us. We marvel at your love for us. Father, we just exalt your name. Father, I thank you for the experience that I had with that group and uh, not only the opportunity to spend the time with them, but the impact that they had on me. Father, I pray that it's a lasting impact. Father, I want to be a man of prayer. I want to be a man of immediate prayer. Father, that comes to you in all things, seeking your guidance, your, your leadership, your, um, and, and trusting, trusting in you for all things. Father, I do pray for the, the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, it would be my preparation and, and uh, a delivery of it, Lord, would be pleasing in your sight. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, Lord, that we might live according to it. In your name we pray. Amen. So, the last time we were in the Sermon on the Mount together, uh, we began chapter 6, where Jesus said in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And his point was that when we do things for the purpose of impressing other people, We've already received our reward. We may receive the praise of man, but that's all that we receive. That's it. There is no reward awaiting us in the life to come. And this is especially true when it relates to our worship and relationship with God. Jesus gave us in in those passages, Jesus, Jesus gave three significant examples, all of which point directly to our relationship with him. All are expressions of our worship when we give to the poor, when we pray, when we fast, it ought not be on display so that we can attract the attention of man. Rather, our giving, our praying, and our fasting should be in secret so that our Heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will reward us appropriately. And Jesus developed that point over the first 18 chapter, 18 verses of the chapter. And it was important for us to look at that as a whole, rather than breaking it up into separate messages, looking at it as a whole. But in the middle of that section, Jesus launched into a very significant tangent. And we skipped over it last time, so it's important that we go back and take an in-depth look today. So this morning, what we're going to look at together is what we know as the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Jesus began his teaching on prayer um, back in verse 5. He said that we ought not be like the hypocrites who stand and pray at the uh, synagogues and on the street corners. He isn't condemning public prayer. Rather, he's condemning self-serving prayer. Self-serving prayer where the intent is to call attention to oneself. He tells us that we should go into our rooms and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Um, Verse 6. Prayer. Prayer is an intimate conversation with God. Our goal should not be to impress others, but to sit in quiet communion with our Creator, to confess our sins to Him, to give thanksgiving for all of His amazing blessings in our lives, to lift our request before His throne of grace. Verse 7, he adds this. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. See, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't repeat our prayers. In fact, in what is usually identified as the parable of the unjust judge, Jesus taught his disciples to be persistent in prayer. The ESV labels this parable, which is not part of the canon, the labels are not part of the canon, as the parable of the persistent widow, rightly shifting the emphasis to where it should be. Verse 1, we have a divine interpretation of that parable. He says, and he told them a parable to the effect 
that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke 18.1. And in the parable, a widow comes repeatedly to an unjust judge asking that he might give her justice against her adversary. And the judge refuses, but is eventually worn down by her many requests. He gives her the justice that she asked for so we might not be beat down by her constant coming, is the way it's worded. How much more, hear this, how much more will God respond to His people who come to Him in persistent prayer? Verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 7, it says, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will he delay long over them? No, God is not only able to answer the prayers of his children, but he desires to do so. Come and keep coming before his throne. So what Jesus is condemning is the mindless repetition of words and phrases as some kind of formula to access the power of God. Babbling that uses prayer like a series of magic words, like abracadabra or bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Pagans would often repeat the name of their God. You see it in the Old Testament and in the New. Waiting for someone, anyone, to answer. One Old Testament example is found when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, 1 Kings 18.26. And for hours and hours, they jumped around the altar, repeating the same words, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. But there was no response. So they cut themselves with swords and lances so that the blood gushed out of their body, all the while continuing to shout, O Baal, answer us. But there was no response from their dead idol. How could there be? There's only one true God, Yahweh. Yahweh. So Elijah prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, by the way, that's the word, O Lord, Lord, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. 1 Kings 18, 36 and 37. And God immediately answered with fire, consuming the bull, the wood, the stone, and the water that had been poured into the trenches. God hears the prayers of his people and will make himself known. Don't pray with mindless repetition. Don't pray by layering on words and paragraphs. Don't think that your many words impress God. They don't. They don't. Jesus is clear when he says, do not be like them. Now, that's pretty strong, right? Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Matthew 6, verse 8. God knows all things. He's omniscient. He knows our every need and our every request before we ever ask Him. But the amazing thing about prayer is that in spite of the fact that God already knows, He still wants us to ask. He still wants us to ask. Prayer, in part, is the vehicle that God uses to answer the request of those who are His. Prayer, communication, is absolutely essential to the relationship between the Father and His children. Ask. Now, Jesus spends a fair amount of time in these passages warning us how not to pray. And I'm grateful that he also took this occasion to turn the conversation on its head and teach us how we ought to pray. So open your Bibles, take a look with me, though this will be a very familiar passage. Um, 
I will begin reading in verse 9 and read through verse 13. Okay? Jesus says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the first thing that we should understand about Jesus' teaching is that he is not necessarily teaching his disciples a prayer. He was teaching them a pattern for prayer. Okay, a pattern for prayer. He doesn't say, pray this. He says, pray like this. Okay, now don't misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong or improper about praying the Lord's Prayer in public worship. There is nothing wrong or improper about praying the Lord's Prayer in public worship. Now, we're not what one would call a liturgical church. To the best of my recollection, in the 20 years we've been here, we've prayed the Lord's Prayer once. And I was the one that prompted it. All right? But there's nothing wrong or improper about praying the Lord's Prayer in public worship. There is nothing wrong or improper with reciting the Lord's Prayer as part of our private communion with God. But Jesus' goal was not to give us a prayer to mechanically repeat, but was to give us an outline, that's a key word, outline, to instruct us on how we are to pray. All right? So that outline begins with an invocation, an opening address, Our Father in Heaven. And it's followed by six petitions. The first three focus on God and His kingdom and His glory while the second three focus on our personal petitions before the Lord, all right? A pattern for prayer. So let's begin with the invocation. Our Father in heaven. How often do we immediately um, enter into prayer and jump immediately to the petition, right? We pray for a specific situation or a need. We pray for someone who's sick without properly addressing the one whom we are petitioning, right? How, how often do we just quickly jump right to that? All prayer should begin with worship. I told you about the brother that I'm going to be praying with every, every uh, Monday morning, and he was very clear, we're going to begin by praising God. I'm like, that's awesome. We're going to do that. We're going to praise God together. Then we'll pray about all the stuff, right? All prayer should begin with worship. All prayer should begin with adoration and an acknowledgement of who God is and His relationship to us. Jesus' model prayer begins with the striking words, Our Father. Jesus teaches His disciples to pray using the words, Our Father. But note that it is only true disciples of Christ who are able to pray to God as Father. Right? Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is the entire, sec- everything we've been going through for a year or more, or however long we've been in this. Um, I, I started by saying it's written to his, or it's, it's not written, it's said, it's spoken to his disciples. Right? So when he's teaching this prayer and he says, use the, the phrase, our Father, he's speaking to his disciples, those who are already in Christ, and therefore God as their Father. We enter the kingdom of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And when we come to faith, we're adopted as a son or a daughter of God. And at that point, and only at that point, can we truly acknowledge God as Father. The word Father emphasizes the relationship. The the Father loves us, cares for us, leads us, guides us, shepherds us. The Father is near to us. He's personal. Personal. He's approachable. Right? But then Jesus adds another layer to that. To that, Jesus um, adds another aspect of God's being to the equation. He says, Our Father in heaven. The fact that God is in heaven points to His His transcendence and His sovereignty. 
God is all-powerful. He reigns over all of heaven and earth. And we address God intimately as Father, but we immediately recognize His infinite greatness with the addition of the phrase, in heaven. And it's so important, so important that we understand these twin truths. God is the transcendent ruler of the universe, while at the same time, He's our loving Father who cares for us. What that means for us is this, that because He is the sovereign God, He is able, He is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine, Ephesians 3.20. And because He is Father, He is willing to answer the prayers of His children. Both are true. Both are true. So once we've rightly addressed God in the Lord's Prayer, we begin the petitions, right? First three address God in His glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. The first petition is that God's name be hallowed or honored as holy. God is holy. In Sunday school, in the discipleship class, we touched on that this morning. And I talked about my understanding, whether it's right or not, I don't know. But, you know, when you look at the various attributes of God, to me, God's holiness defines all the rest. Yes, it is an attribute unto itself, so I don't want to go too far with that. But to me, God's love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. And on and on. He's set apart. He is holy. He is set apart. And the prayer is not, is not that His name be made holy. It already is. But that it would be recognized and acknowledged as such. Previous chapter, we read the words, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16. The point being that the purpose of our good works is that others might see them and correctly give the glory and honor to our Father who is in heaven. Note the repetition in the language. 5.16 and uh, here in the Lord's Prayer. And in so doing, God's name is honored as holy. The glory is rightly attributed to Him. But it's not just about a watching world that needs to see Him. It is about that, but it's more than that. It's about our own thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. Do we live holy lives that bring honor to His name? Do our actions proclaim a proper reverence for who He is? The law of Moses, God said, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So our sanctification is definitely linked to how God's name is seen and is it being shown as holy. Our obedience to God's command and our thoughts and our attitudes related to those commands either proclaim a proper reverence for God and His holiness or a complete disregard for His rule over our lives. There really is no in-between. There is no in-between. May God's name be hallowed, revered, honored as holy in our lives, and as a result, may His name be hallowed in all the earth. Second petition is at the beginning of verse 10. If you look at verse 10, Your kingdom come. Now, this petition has both a present and a future focus. In the present, the kingdom of God represents the reign of Christ in our hearts and our lives of those who are His. It's a present reality. Jesus had announced the coming of the kingdom in both Matthew 3.2 and Matthew 4.17. He said, repent, for the kingdom of, of, of heaven is at hand. As God's people submit more and more fully to His will, we come more completely under His lordship, His kingdom is established in us. At the same time, we live in an era which is defined by the already, not yet. God's kingdom is here. It's established in us. But there is still a future consummation yet to come. And what is yet to come 
is glorious. It's glorious. And what begins in an apparently small way will grow into something that's unmistakable. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Matthew 13, 31 to 33. We should pray. As Jesus teaches us here, we should pray for the future consummation of God's rule in which he will reign fully and completely over the world. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22.20 Third petition, which follows closely on the second, is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done perfectly within the heavenly realm. The angels serve Him fully and completely. I had the pleasure, I think it was about a month ago, to teach the adult Sunday school here, and we taught on angels and demons and Satan. But the angels serve Him fully and completely. And this petition asks that God's perfect will would be done on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. The prayer is that God's people would submit more fully to God's will and live under the reign and rule of Christ. God has revealed His will to us in His Word. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5.17. Seek to understand His Word and to live in obedience to it. The essence of discipleship is obedience. It is obedience. Live in accordance with the will of God in your life. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James 1.22 Know that it is those who do the will of the Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, um, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7.21 And for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, Matthew 12, 50, right? So when we pray these first three petitions, we commit ourselves to honor God's name as holy, to accept his kingship, and to do his will, all right? Which moves us to the second set of uh, petitions, The second set of petitions focus on our needs. First, verse 11, is the physical need for our daily bread. Later in this chapter, we're going to look together at what it means to trust God without anxiety for our food, for our water, for our clothing, verses 25 to 33. But for now, we're going to express that trust in a simple prayer for our daily bread, the most basic need for survival. When the Israelites wandered through the the wilderness, God supplied them with manna from heaven. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Exodus 16, 4 and 5. And every day, God supplied their needs. They were to collect enough for their daily needs, no more. What does that teach? It teaches a total dependence on God, does it not? Any that was left overnight bred worms and and stank. And the lesson that God taught them were to trust Him for their daily needs. We are to do the same. Trust God for your daily needs. To ask God for our daily bread acknowledges our complete dependence on Him for even the most routine provision. Jesus takes our physical needs seriously. 
And it's right and it's proper for us to bring those requests before his throne. Every request. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. I told you I would quote him liberally during this series. Um, He says this, and he connects this petition to the ones that came before it, right? He says, "Is, is not this one of the most wonderful things in the whole of Scripture? That the God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, the God who is forming his eternal kingdom and who will usher it in at the end, the God to whom the nations are but as the small dust of the balance, that such a God should be prepared to consider your little needs and mine, even down to the minutest details in this matter of daily bread. The prayer is for our needs, not for our wants and desires, for our needs. All good gifts come from the hand of God. He supplies our every need, and we depend on His grace and His mercy for them. The fifth petition comes in verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, the forgiveness that's referred to here um, is not the forgiveness that is part and parcel to our justification. Remember, these are disciples, these are true disciples of Christ. And the reason for that is the Lord's Prayer can only be prayed by those who are already children of God, and therefore God is their Father. So their, their sins, in an ultimate sense, are already forgiven, are already forgiven. John 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Peter questioned him. Peter asked him to wash his head and his hands also. But Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Of course, he was talking about Judas. John 13, 10. So even though our lives, even though our sins have been forgiven, we are still to go to God asking for forgiveness for particular sins and for areas where we've fallen short of His glory. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And John didn't write that book for the unbeliever. He wrote it specifically for those who are already in Christ. He says, I've written these things so that you can know, Right? So he wrote to the Christian who still falls short, who still needs forgiveness of sin and cleansing from all unrighteousness. The prayer goes on to say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 12. Notice that it doesn't say, forgive us our debts because we have forgiven our debtors. Right? There's a difference. Our forgiveness of others is not the basis for God's forgiveness of us. That said, because of the forgiveness that we receive through, through and by the grace of Jesus Christ, it necessitates fruit that will result in the forgiveness of others who have wronged us. It's fruit. Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant who even though he had been forgiven a great debt by his master, refused to offer forgiveness to one who owed him a small debt. And the master had him thrown, ultimately it goes through you know, a lot of iterations of that, but ultimately the master had him thrown into prison until he could pay all that he owed. Verse 35 says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, Matthew 18, 35. So the proof or the evidence that we're forgiven is that we forgive others. If we think that our sins are forgiven by God and we refuse to forgive someone else, then we are deceived. We are deceived. We have never been forgiven. Should not we, hear this, should not we, the recipients of God's grace, be the first to offer that grace to others? Should we not be the first? 
Let me jump forward to uh, verses four, skip forward to verses 14 and 15 after the Lord's Prayer, because those verses connect especially to, to Jesus' word in this petition. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verses 14 and 15. Forgiveness in our heart is the proof or evidence that we have been forgiven. Forgiveness produces the fruit of love. In Luke 7, we read of the sinful woman with the alabaster uh, flask who anointed Jesus, washed his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Luke uh, 7, 47. So how can we, how can we who have lavishly received God's grace and been forgiven of our many sins not offer that same forgiveness to others? How arrogant, how arrogant must we be to hold on to unforgiveness when we have been forgiven so much? One cannot coexist with the other. Either we receive the forgiveness of God and extend that same forgiveness to others, or we do not. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Final petition is found in verse 13. Jesus says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Scripture is very clear that God does not lead us into temptation. God does not lead us into temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James 1.13 There are certainly times, there are certainly times that God leads us into testing. Into testing. And often that testing leads to triumph and testimony. But he does not lead us into temptation. So this last petition is a prayer for protection. It's a prayer for protection. We are asking that we should never be led into a situation where we are likely to be tempted by evil. Either the evil that surrounds us or the evil that resides within us. We pray to God that we should never be led into situations where we know we will be easily tempted and where we are liable to fall. Jesus told His disciples to watch and to pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41. And then to Peter He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, Luke 22, 31 to 32. And doing exactly that, exactly as Jesus told him to do, the Apostle Peter wrote these words to us. He said, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. So the threat, the threat is very, very real. And it comes from the spiritual forces at work in this world. It comes from the world itself. And it comes from the evil inclinations of our own heart. And our supreme desire, as we pray this petition, our supreme desire should be to have a right relationship with God, to know Him, to have uninterrupted fellowship with Him. And sin breaks that fellowship. Pray for God's protection, that we might not be led into evil. But when we are, and you will be, quickly seek His forgiveness. And pray that He would restore that fellowship and strengthen our desire to serve Him rightly. Know that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to endure and will always provide 
the way of escape. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So the Lord's Prayer is not meant to be a rote prayer to be recited in either public or private worship. Though again, there's nothing improper about praying it that way. As long, it is, as long as it is truly prayed. How many of us have been in gatherings where the Lord's Prayer is recited? And, you know, we don't know the hearts of those in the room, but it just feels as if it's just words recited, memorized, a rote prayer. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but pray it. Don't say it. Pray it. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples was meant to be a pattern. He said, pray like this. And when we follow the Lord's pattern, we address God as loving Father, at the same time acknowledging him as the transcendent ruler of the universe. Because he is Father, he is willing. Because he is God, he is able. Amen? God answers the prayers of his children. Know that. Trust that. And as we bring praise to Him, it's right that our petitions focus first on His kingdom and His glory. Because it's not about you, it's about Him. We pray that His name would be recognized and upheld as holy, set apart. That His name would be honored in the world and through our reverence and our obedience. We pray that His kingdom would come. First, that His reign and rule would take hold in our lives personally while we await the fulfillment when He comes again to set up His kingdom. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. We pray that His will, His plan, His purposes will be fulfilled in this world as it is in heaven. And once we've addressed God's glory and His kingdom, then we can bring our requests to Him. We can pray for our daily provision. We pray not only for food, but every need that we have, both big and small. Trust Him. Trust Him. God cares about the details, and the Father will provide for his children. We pray for the forgiveness of sins we commit, and we do that as we also forgive those who sin against us. And our forgiveness stems from the gratitude that we have because we have been forgiven by him. And finally, we pray for protection from evil. The threat is very real. But in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, we can stand firm. Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer is a gift. It's a gift. To imagine the God of the universe standing there with his disciples and saying, Come around, boys. Pray like this. Pray like this. May it be our guide and our pattern as you approach the throne of grace with reverence and with awe. Let's pray. God, you are indeed a gracious Father. And at the same time, the the sovereign God of the universe. And we marvel at the fact that as you stand above, so far above us, transcendent from this world, that you care about the details and you care about us and that you care about our slightest need down to the food that we eat, to the clothes that we wear, which we'll find, we'll, we'll learn later in the chapter. Father, you are a God of details and you care for your children and we love you. 
Father, I pray for myself. I pray for our congregation. Lord, that we would be people of prayer. Father, that we would come individually, individually, privately, in our closets, that we would come before your throne, offering you the praise that you and you alone are due, giving you all the glory and honor. Lord, hallowing your name as indeed holy, set apart above all things. But Lord, that we would listen. Father, that we would come into your presence, in some cases even just basking in your presence. But Lord, that you would hear our prayers, prayers that you already know what we are going to ask before we ask, yet your desire is the relationship that we would come and we would ask. And you, Father, give good gifts to your children. We, we just, again, we marvel at that. Again, Lord, I pray that you would make us people of prayer, both privately and publicly, and that your name would be glorified through it all. Father, may that be so in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Go in his peace. Amen.